Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, here we are again. Hello, Andrew. Hello, and we're doing, going back a few centuries. To, we're going back in time. To a period that's hardly taught in schools. I think there'll be a lot of fresh, fresh material today. I think there will be. We're talking about the, the gorgeous Georgians. Oh, were they gorgeous? Or were lots, they scandalous? Lots of scandal there. Lots of scandal. I mean, it's an incredible era. Um, we're talking about, well, the better part of the 18th century going into the beginning of the 19th. Extraordinary time of change, energy, great military success for Britain. We're building the empire. We're, vanquishing our enemies. We're also instituting slavery across the world and doing all sorts of dark and terrible things. It's a ferment of activism and anarchy and all sorts of mad, incredible characters emerge in this time. Um, One of the more extraordinary is James Gilroy. James Gilray, I should say, the famous cartoonist. And we're going to be talking to our old friend, Tim Clayton. Who is the world expert? Who is the world expert? And that sort of ties into the theme of 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 a, of a growing press, more commercial press, which is pushing a lot of this change. You're going to talk about how, how it affects change from in sense from below. I'm going to argue how adultery acts and various things reduced respect for the aristocracy, uh, mainly through scandal. Uh, and I think yes, there are a lot of very interesting parallels with with contemporary life, and I think what we're both going to talk about today. Well, indeed. And actually, it's, we should have been alive then, Andrew. It was the golden age in London of scurrilous, muckraking hacks, yes. polemicists, scribblers <laughs> in their well, this, garrets. This isn't a long tradition. There was a wonderful one that went for about 20 years, a newsletter called Histoire of Tete-a-Tete. Tete-a-Tete right. were the, the assignations. Very explicit stuff yes, yeah. about the misbehavior of the great and the good. No libel laws then. That would have been great. Um, yeah, so we talked to Tim a little bit about Gilray, but I wanted to start by talking about something I know a little bit about myself from this period. And you may have noticed there's a book on the table, and it's a book that I wrote with Tim. Um, it's not really about the scandals so much. It's about the Battle of Trafalgar. But, of course, the central figure of the Battle of Trafalgar is Britain's great hero, 
one of the most towering personalities of this era, Admiral Nelson, Horatio Nelson. And he is involved in an amazing story, which I think really tells us a lot about what life was really like. Oh, um, across society. the society, yeah. Um, and again, fascinating parallels with contemporary life. You can think of a sort of war hero suddenly getting, you know, involved with, with, with a slightly racy film star. I mean, it's a very class-based society. But it's, and yet it's also a society that's beginning to reorganize itself. And you, people do move through society in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do a hundred years before. And Nelson himself is a great example. You know, he's the, um, the son of a poor country cleric who becomes a towering figure. And this wasn't happening in every other country. And one of the reasons people like to speculate about why they kept beating the French Navy is that the French Navy was nothing like as socially mobile especially this this era we're talking now, maybe just before the revolution, but actually even after the revolution in France, you know, you basically, you bought your position or you inherited it. And there wasn't this sense of meritocracy that allowed someone like um, Nelson to become incredibly successful. In well, actually, the Navy more so even than the army, because people were still yeah. buying commissions until quite late. The, the, the Navy. Um, I mean, we can go down so many tangents on this episode, I must be careful, but one of the ones you could cut out is the Georgian Navy is probably the most successful institution this country has ever produced in terms of what it achieved and how it transformed the position of the country and its economy um, just dramatically. And who were the other figures apart from Nelson? Because, I mean, he's the one we always hear about because of Trafalgar. God, well, he was the the latest in a long line of brilliant fighting admirals. I mean, the guy Hawke, who um, has a huge role in the the war, um, what's called the Seven Years' War, which is a little bit before Nelson's time. Uh, where we, the, you know, the power of the navy is absolutely critical to kind of securing Canada, which means North America, which means that's why America develops as an English-speaking nation rather than a French-speaking nation. These are hugely important things, and the navy is at the heart of all of it. Um, but um, going, going back to sort of the slightly more scandalous side of life, Nelson is an example of how a man could change his situation through fighting by being very good at war. Um, other men change their situations through sport. Jockeys could do it. Boxers could do it through industry, through science. Um, there was right. literature, a, I suppose. Just to a certain extent, by literature too. But it was different for women. Um, and, and the woman we're going to talk a little bit about now is Hamilton's famous mistress, Emma. Emma, oh, sorry, Nelson's famous mistress, Emma Hamilton. Um, and she, I mean, she really kind of. She comes from an even worse background than him. I mean, she's real, really poor. Nobody quite knows her her true origin. Well, I mean, she seems to have a series of names. No one's even quite sure what she was called. That's right. But she kind of, she's an example of a woman of the time who manages to transform her life by trading up through society, by trading on her personality, her charm, her wit, her good looks, and her sexuality. She finds herself a series of patrons um, uh, to, to live with to form relationships with none. Actually, Emma's quite lucky in that she, she's treated better than, than, than many other women in that situation. And she does not at the seem end. to be shamed as a result of it. I mean, you know, her reputation in some ways remains pretty, pretty good all the way through, doesn't it? I think by the time she and Nelson meet, she's probably the most famous woman in Europe. Much admired. Today, she'd be called a celebrity influencer. I mean, everybody wanted to paint her all the best artists. People wanted to book her to sing. She was a very talented performer. I'm rushing ahead of myself, as I often do. Uh, Let's just jump back a little bit, because she comes to London from Cheshire, where she's born, basically to work as a servant. 
but she finds herself on the fringe of a sort of slightly bohemian artistic world of some genuinely talented people and some real chances and quacks. And she first pops up in the historical record as a 15-year-old exotic dancer. I mean, this is dark stuff. Uh, she well, it's quite a naked. common story still. Uh, well, yes, her age is an issue, would have been an issue then, but perhaps people cared less. Um, and she worked for this ridiculous character, this Scotsman called James Graham, who was a quack doctor who created the Grand Celestial Electronic Bed on which you could receive various treatments to cure your ailments. And that involved running electric currents through various parts of this bed and giving you little electric shocks. But I think other things are happening in the rooms as well, which were not perhaps intended to be therapeutic, more pleasurable. <laughs> so she's well, kind of like borderline prostitution, but she's also kind of making great connections with the, the people in this slightly constrained circle of artists and quack doctors. And aristocrats too, I suppose that's and young the key. aristocrats. And finally, she finds somebody who likes her so much, she doesn't just want to spend time on the celestial bed with her. He wants to make her his mistress. And at this point, she's still only about 16. Uh, he's called, I never pronounced his name correctly, so Harry Featherstonehoe. Tim will correct me if that's wrong. Um, and he basically hires her to be a hostess, an entertainer, and a lover. And his house, he's a, he's a, he's a, a young, slightly dissolute aristo. There are lots of them around. Um, and she gets him, she gets pregnant by him. And he's not very happy about this. But she's lucky because she's met a friend of his who's even better connected, and he's Charles Greville, proper posh, proper nobility. And he and sort of takes her in, doesn't he? Greville takes her in. But the child is fostered out. He accepts that she's going to have the child. The child is fostered to a good home, and he basically keeps her as his mistress. And at that time, there was like a sort of semi-official position in many aristocratic families for the mistress. It was almost expected. So long as you didn't kind of parade it too openly. In real high society, the, the wives of these men had kind of been brought up, I imagine, to expect that sort of thing. Well, also, this is a period where people are marrying perhaps for position uh, and, and for, for reasons of influence rather than, say, for love. So it's understood that the two perhaps yeah, are separate. It is understood. And as we'll get on to some of the scandal sheets later, um, a lot of these married women had their own relationships and affairs that were endlessly being exploited. And we suddenly start having reporting of divorce cases, which hadn't really happened much before. Um, anyway, she was, Emma's with Charles Gravel, who is properly well-connected. He introduces her to the Britain's most famous painters, Joshua Reynolds, George Romney, who had become completely besotted with Emma. I mean, she was apparently unbelievably gorgeous and had a real flair for kind of modelling these kind of ancient poses, often draped in not very many clothes, to represent the sort of a classical, um, you know, the images of classical antiquity, which were very fashionable at the time. And was her interest purely professional? Well, I think for the painters, yes, it was. Um, she just became the hottest subject you could paint. And the prints of her in her various, they were bestsellers. We were queuing up outside the print shops to buy these images. She, she becomes really, really... Was this like an early playboy then? No, I don't think they were... I mean, they were a little bit salacious, but they were, they were hung up at the Royal Academy. Hmm. I mean, her work, pictures of Emma and, and lots of European artists wanted to paint her as well. Um, she also teaches herself to sing. She's apparently very good at singing. She's offered um, commissions to spend... At one point, she's offered £1,500 to do a year's... Um, um, singing at the uh, at a theatre in Covent Garden, and apparently that's like two hundred thousand pounds today. It's pretty pretty good going for somebody who's just breaking into show business. Um, so Greville makes her a celebrity, um, and then something very eighteenth century happens. 
he, he he's getting married himself. He's been his family wants him to get married, and he decides he has to let Emma go. So he gives her effectively. He gives her away to his own uncle as a present. I mean, this is we think it seems so shocking, doesn't it? It seems so wrong. We don't really know how Emma felt about this. Things like that go on the royal family to this day. Well, the, the, the uncle um, is another very famous figure. Um, and it, it's Hamilton, William Hamilton. And he's about to become Britain's ambassador in Naples, a key diplomatic post. And she sent us to Naples to see him. But she, apparently, Greville doesn't tell her that she's being sent there to become his mistress. Well, she just happens to she's, pass by. She thinks she's going on a holiday. Right. But what, why, why does the nephew think that William Hamilton might, might want to? Because he's married, after all. He's got this very respectful position. Um, Is it just a little bit on the side? His wife has died. Oh. Or she's ill. I'm, can't, I'm not entirely sure what stage her, the marriage is at when Emma arrives. But I guess the point of it is this is a very 18th century kind of um, mixture of kind of squalid and, and, and kind of ridiculously optimistic. She actually takes to him. She likes Naples. Um, she doesn't particularly miss Gravel. And he proposes marriage to her. Now, this is very rare. for a, He's a proper aristocrat. He's not going to keep her as a mistress like Charles did, like his nephew did. He's 60, by the way, and she's, I think, 24 at this point. Um, but he marries her um, and makes her a respectable lady. And what were her feelings for him? I think she was very fond of him. I mean, they stayed together throughout, even the coming relationship with Nelson. It's hard to know what, what they were like together as partners. They were apparently very good friends. She was a big part of his life as a diplomat, and she becomes very influential with the Queen of Naples, Marie Charlotte, I think she's called. So this isn't so much a sexual relationship as a sort of business arrangement. I think it's both. I think it's both. But I think Emma really starts to shine, and she starts receiving government papers and getting involved in all kinds of intrigues. And There's wars raging across Europe. We're now in the years immediately after the French Revolution, um, the fact that she can bring influence to bear on the queen of this little statelet, very influential statelet in Italy, becomes very important. So important, in fact, that she gets to meet Lord Nelson, who shows up. Now, this is, this is like a Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor kind of meeting. He's probably the most famous man in Britain. He's certainly Britain's greatest war hero. Um, this is obviously before Trafalgar, but he's already had many victories. She's the most famous woman in Europe, certainly celebrated for her beauty and her charm and her, her wit. And they meet and they instantly fall in love. And it's obvious to everybody around them what's going on, including the husband, William Hamilton, who apparently just looks the other way. Um, and not, not even looking the other way. He's very happy to share a home with them, even though he knows, you know, the sleeping arrangements have changed. Right. Gosh, I mean, it's, it's in some ways, it's a very sort of open and and... Liberal society, isn't it? I mean, it was it was riven by hypocrisy. This society. I mean, for example, when he takes her to London, um, he is um, she is entertained by many society figures, but those same women are writing each other letters, which we find many years later, saying, "Oh, isn't she common?" And her accent, she sounds like a kind of you know, she's had a sort of broad northern accent, even even though she'd spent all these years amongst these posh people. And do you think that one of the attractions was that Nelson himself felt to be an outsider and here was someone else who... who... Yes, Nelson, when they were all, politically, they were both very conservative. I mean, radically conservative, reactionary people. Um, it's wrong to assume just because they'd come up, as it were, from 
from lower class backgrounds, they had any sympathy with radicals and rebels. They did not. Nelson was never happier than when he would hang a rebel. But he hated the French Revolution. He hated the Americans. He hated anything to do with trade unions. And Emma was no different. In fact, this leads them into one of the darkest um, stages of Nelson's own life, partly because of Emma's intriguing um, whole load of rebels who have been captured in all the wars that are going on in Italy. Um, they surrendered to the British army or the navy. And honour dictates that if you surrender and you're promised safe passage, you are given safe passage. But in this case, because of Emma's influence, it's believed, Nelson allows these men to be executed. And it causes an absolute stink. People get up in Parliament and say, our war hero has become, um, you know, he, he almost fought a duel over it because he was, he was, he was so... Um, roundly condemned for doing this dishonorable thing. So this is just the pure influence of Emma on him. I, d- I doubt it was just Emma. But I guess it makes my point that they were, you know, they were they were quite um, confronting as people. And they didn't live by the rules. Uh, they were living in this kind of open uh, relationship. They had all this power which they enjoyed using. Uh, and their politics would not have gone down one at The Guardian. And what were the, I mean, what was the, the popular perception of them? Did, that, did they fall down the sort of popularity rankings as a result? No, of people this? loved them because, of course, he, Nelson was Nelson, was such a hero, and the wars are still going on, and everybody's terrified what's going to happen, are the French going to invade, blah, blah, blah. So, yes, they're having this open relationship. The Queen, the Queen Charlotte, won't receive Emma, but she's, she's not too bothered about that. She's got lots of friends in the theatrical world, and many other Aristos do, even though, as I say, often behind her back, they're bitching about her a little bit. And some of that gets into the poetry. Tim can talk about this. There are lots of scandal sheets being printed all the time all across London, just like Bridgerton, really. Um, and in them, often she, Emma is mocked, and people predict that she might end up on the streets when she's older. Well, it's interesting you bring up Bridgerton, because in some ways it, it shows the level of interest there is in the period and what rich pickings it is for drama. Um, but though we don't study it necessarily at school, this is a period which is fascinating. I think it's people. because... The world of change. England yeah. was in a mid-fevered change and some extraordinary characters. And the status of people was being transformed. Emma's a great example of that. But of course, it goes both ways. There is such hypocrisy. Um, as soon as Nelson dies, I mean, Nelson's death was a massive event. The, the victory at Trafalgar um, sets the seal really on, on, on Britain's triumph over France in what's been a, a hundred-year confrontation. And Britain will now rule the waves for a century or more because of this. He is. He's slightly obsessed with his own death, Nelson. He, he plans it meticulously. And he puts Emma into the plans. And he says, Emma will sing at the funeral and that Emma will receive all this money. Rather, they have a daughter by now. Yeah. So how old is Horatia by, by this? Horatia is the daughter. I think, oh gosh, I should know this. I think she's about four. Right. When Nelson so dies. So he knew, I mean, that he might well die during his naval death wish. I mean, yeah. he, he put himself in the line of fire to inspire his men. It was part of his, you know, he'd already lost Skill. an arm mm-hmm. and he'd lost an eye. Um, he was a very recklessly brave man. So he'd planned his own funeral, he'd planned his own death. He expected the government and the powers that be to honour that. Well, they didn't. They absolutely didn't. Well, Emma gave- was not allowed to go to the funeral. Yeah. Um, she was given some money, nothing like as much as Nelson wanted her to have. But he was given money, wasn't he? Um, well, he was dead. Yeah, yeah. But so, I mean, so, so, so there was no money to him as this great hero, because normally... It is, you know, think of Wellington and people after great naval, after great victories, given huge houses and no, uh, he, the state honoured him with a huge public of showing. There was some money set aside for the for the child, 
And some money did go to Emma, but nothing like as much as Nelson had hoped for and planned. And her status starts to crumble. So she's abandoned by all these people. She's not abandoned. It's a slow process. She keeps up the home that they had at Merton near near Wimbledon. It's a fantastic home. She sort of turns it into a shrine for him. She still receives visitors, but it dwindles. And she takes to drink, doesn't she? She takes to gambling and to drinking. And she gets angry, I think. She feels that she's not being treated with the deference expected. And how old is she at this stage? Still pretty oh, young. Oh, God, she's only in her 40s. Hmm. Um, and she has a child who's growing up. And how old is Nelson when he dies? Oh, God, you asked me this question, I should know. I'm, I'm going to say about 52. Right. But um, it's in the book. It's in the book. <laughs> Read the book. Um, <laughs> that's, t- the only, that's the only thing you can trust. Tim did the facts. I just did the, <laughs> the florid writing. That <laughs> you, was my you, you did the, yes, the atmosphere. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an incredible story of, you know, when it comes to it, she wasn't highborn. She didn't marry into the real aristocracy, the people that really had power. She was always seen as a parvenu. And it was in nobody's interest, I guess, after Nelson was dead, to sort of keep her around much. Maybe made a spectacle of herself, you know, drunk at too many parties, gambling debts. She flees. She has to go to France. She's escaping her you know, creditors. Takes, takes the daughter, takes Horatio with her. Um, then she gets ill and she dies in a rather modest hotel in Calais. And that's kind of the sad end of a story of, of one of the great scandals. And it was only really a scandal, actually, because people kind of chose to, uh, well, certain factions chose to kind of embrace them as a couple, whilst other factions were scurrilously writing about what an outrageous scandal it was. And I guess also but, the person I haven't mentioned is Nelson's wife. Exactly, Fanny. Fanny. Yeah. She's that's not happy. Saying. Yeah. Um, at all. Um, you know, she literally deserves the epithet long-suffering. Presumably there are children from this marriage. There are children in this marriage. There are two. Um, and Nelson seems to have no concern for her feelings. He writes very, very harsh letters. She writes to him lovingly, tenderly, understanding what's happened, but wanting to somehow keep them. But he's, he's not interested. So he treats her very badly. And I think she, she herself is not without her friends, her allies is one of the reasons why it becomes slightly um, more and more of a scandal after um, after Nelson's death, because then people can really write nasty things about Emma. Oh, you know, she was scheming, she was mean, and now she's losing her looks and she's drinking too much. So it's not pleasant to see it turn like that. But it, I'm just amazed as his popularity remains high, even though there's this publicity about the breakup with the marriage, you know, that, that he doesn't appear to be very kind to her. I mean, great as a military leader. Um, he was a big personality. So was Emma. I mean, I don't think they were very nice people, if I'm honest. Um, he, uh, he was an incredible war leader. Um, sort of egoism a deux, isn't it? He was very egotistical. He was, and he was, as I say, he was so obsessed with his place in history that he planned every detail of his own funeral, including who was going to sing and all the hymns and everything. Um, and I think he was a man who was used to, you know, being, uh, admired and having his commands followed. So it's sort of went not, not a man to cross. Mm. Not a man to cross. Um, but it sort of nicely segues into to Gilray, but also into I think something we're going to talk about after Tim, which is the way that the social change is driven by a growing lack of respect for the aristocracy because of the way they behave. Well, we think we're living in an age of sleaze, and that sleaze, you know, I'd say that the Conservative government of John Major partly collapsed because of sleaze. And a lot of people think the sleaze around the current government in this country is is driving people to say, we need to change. 
But something, yeah, something Which very similar actually, happened in Georgia, yeah. England. Well, I think the interesting, there's so many interesting parallels, I mean, between the, the, that period and, and, and this period, as you say. And, and I think one of the things that, which clearly Gilray is part of is this rise of the popular press, people more questioning of authority. Um, I mean, they're people, a bit like as they're hypocrites too, because they love reading this stuff. People make a lot of money selling accounts of all the scandalous lives of the rich and the famous. Yeah. But they people, also judge them and they say, well, it's wrong. They should, yeah. they should behave better. And we know. don't judge in scandal mongers, <laughs> do we? We, don't we, 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 we just, just let it, it all out. <laughs> so there is a kind of, and this as a Victorian era kind of comes, uh, this idea of middle-class morality. Uh, well, it was a real force, and it just wasn't there in George and England. Well, it's Victoria, it I suppose, there. which you get, and then you have so many members of the royal family clearly leading pretty dissolute lives. I mean, uh, and again, I don't know what the attitudes of the monarchy are, but presumably there's some criticism of the way they live, and Victoria and Albert sort of restore that. Absolutely. No, I think it later. becomes a crisis. We'll talk about this a bit later. But it becomes a crisis yeah. of legitimacy because there are so many people who, you know, do go to church. Maybe they're Quakers, maybe they're nonconformists. Maybe they're socialists. You know, many people have said there's more Methodism in the development of the British Labour Party than ever there was Marxism. Yes. Yeah. It comes from that very stern, you know, you work hard, you educate your children, you save, you don't drink. Yeah. Whereas look at the aristocrats. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the interesting <laughs> they're fathering things. Fathering about... illegitimate children, they're always drunk, they're always gambling. You know, they're, but also, they're I mean, mad. the two sort of drivers of historical change, the, 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 the great man theory where individuals can change things and clearly the determinist Marxist view of great social forces. And in some ways, it clearly it's a mixture of both. But you, in a sense, can have, you can talk about the Methodism and the, and the changes and, and, and industrialization changing things. And in some ways, as the posh one, I can talk about the aristocrats shagging and people losing, <laughs> losing their respect. Well, I know who the audience is more interested in. But actually, I think the Victorians get a very bad rap. F- final point from me before we go to Tim. You know, because we think of the Georgians, we think of Jane Austen, we think of all the beautiful costume dramas and everybody's, you know, dancing and drinking and having fun and it's all in colour. We think of the Victorians through those grimy black and white pictures of people in, in, in awful slums and factories. But the only reason we have those pictures is because the Victorians cared. There's much more reformist energy in the Victorian times yeah. than ever there was. George England was cruel. I mean, it was kind of magical and creative, but it was cruel. Well, so it was Becky Sharp, Vanity Fair. is a wonderful, wonderful example. insight. All right. Well, look, I've spouted on long enough and revealed my deep lack of knowledge about a subject <laughs> on which I've written a, a well-reviewed book. But uh, let's introduce you to, to, let's go to Tim, because he actually does know the facts and he is a genuine expert. Welcome, Tim. Yeah, thanks. Lovely to talk to you. Um, looks like you're joining us from heaven. Uh, yes, Ooh. maybe I should try to get this. He's in our Elysium Field studio, yes. Yes, yes indeed. Or maybe it's Suffolk is heaven. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, I, I, I was explaining uh, to Andrew that you and I have known each other, Tim, almost as long as I've known Andrew. Um, <laughs> and that we all met in 1978, can you believe it? In fact... Uh, Mrs. Craig helpfully pointed out that our combined ages would more or less take us to the Georgian era. Although I don't think that's quite <laughs> that was very sweet of her. Yes, I don't think that's quite true. <laughs> I think the eighteen forties, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we've been chatting away about uh, Emma largely, and I've been showing my lack of knowledge of the book we wrote, and claiming that all the factual stuff was down to you. Um. But we'd love to hear a, a, a more about the scandalous Georgians from the perspective that you can bring about this amazing man, Gilray. Uh, um, did he paint Emma or uh, draw her himself? Uh, he, he did 
do a couple of uh, prints of Emma. He probably knew Emma from quite early on because Charles Greville um, was uh, was very much a patron of the of the Humphrey family. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if Gilray didn't know Emma before she went to Italy. Um, he'd certainly have known her appearance because there were loads and loads of prints of her. Greville and George Rumney together produced lots of lots of portraits of Emma in attitude. But Gilray only did her after the Hamiltons and Nelson came back to England in 1801. Uh, and he depicts her as Dido in despair, throwing <laughs> her arms wide as Nelson goes off to take control and take command of the Channel Fleet and go off and fight the French in, in Boulogne. Um, but next to her, she also has uh, attitudes from antiquity. I think a picture of her, uh, she's sort of depicted on a sheet of paper, naked with her legs open, in, uh, <laughs> and, um, simultaneously on another sheet of paper, she's got things from the antique with, with the, I think it's basically intended to be um, Lord Hamilton chasing her. Uh, there's a, you know, so there are lots and lots of in jokes. Nelson depicts her as very, very fat, but he often, that's no proof that she was very, very fat at the time. You mean Gilray depicts her? Sorry. Gilray depicts her as very fat. Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a life's work for you, but I mean, a lot of people listening to this would never have heard of Gilray. So, what's the one minute introduction of who he is and why he's important? Why you love him? Okay, well, Gilray was the first person who made um, political caricature in, into an art form, essentially. Um, uh, there were political prints were a, 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 a well-known instrument along with the newspapers and along with uh, satirical pamphlets of um, getting a blow across politically. Uh, but... Um, there were also satirical prints that dealt in in uh, social affairs, um, and so actresses and prominent personalities, and certainly any scandal of the moment was likely to find its way. It would find its way into the newspapers. It would find its way uh, into broadsheets and and pamphlets, and it would. Have certainly find its way into caricatures uh, uh generally they're funny uh so gilray was the uh son of a, a chelsea pensioner son of a soldier who was injured at the battle of fontenoy and lost uh, uh lost an arm there um uh brought up in chelsea uh, aimed to become a serious artist, but a lot of people who were aiming to be serious artists when they were young made a penny or two out of doing caricatures. Um, the market for serious art collapsed in the 1790s as a result of the war with France. Uh, and by that time, people had told Gilray that he was easily the best caricaturist around and he turned permanently to political caricature settling down in the early 1790s with his publisher whether as man and wife isn't entirely clear but they were very definitely very close friends and business partners and he made money from these cartoons 
So he made money from these cartoons. He ended up with, you know, reasonably comfortable living. Mrs. Humphrey, he left all his money to Mrs. Humphrey. And when she died, she left £10,000, which in those days was, you know, a pretty decent amount of, of, of money. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, and eventually he um, takes a pension from the government uh, and his main efforts are directed against Napoleon. Uh, and he becomes, he is told that he's a valuable part of the war effort. And, uh, 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 so Bonaparte, little bony, who was his invention. Um, really? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So whole, our, our idea. The whole idea that Napoleon is a little villainous guy is, uh, largely Gilray's invention. So huh. in lasting pictorial form. Yeah. That's so interesting. And what were the other sort of scandals that he would sort of um, satirise? Well, if we're talking uh, sexual scandal and that kind of thing... Well, um, they're our favourites. Yes, yes. Well, he had lots of scope. Um, I think he began with Lady Worsley. Uh, there's a print called Lady Worsley's Seraglio, which shows uh, uh, Lady Worsley and about 20 lovers queuing up to, um, to, to uh, make love to her. Um, and another one called, um, Sir Richard Worse Than Sly Showing His Wife's Bottom 05. This comes out of a case <laughs> of criminal conversation where, um, Lord Worsley sued, um, Lady Worsley's lover, who was an officer in his, in his regiment of volunteers who were camped out to I mean, these criminal conversations, this is actually uh, something that went on. You, you, it's a phrase that's actually quite common at the time, isn't it? Because it describes there husbands suing their lovers. Con trials because the 1780s were absolutely wild. Um, and um, this one failed because uh, Worsley was shown to have um, lifted uh, his wife's lover on his shoulders so that the lover could see her naked in the bath um, and for various other reasons he was uh, and was Gilroy put under any pressure I mean if he was satirizing powerful people because I mean even the prime ministers were involved and need the, the royal family in many of these episodes uh, yes um, well he was put under pressure and eventually one of the prints showing uh, one of the leading brothel keepers presenting the Prince of Wales with a baby um, <laughs> did lead to Gilray uh, being prosecuted. Um, and at that point, he was offered the choice between prosecution and uh, £200 to work for us. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it begins... Lady Worsley is the first case... Uh, the next one is probably the Prince of Wales and Mrs. Fitzherbert. The Prince of Wales married um, Mrs. Fitzherbert. Only, of course, this was an illegal marriage because the Royal Marriages Act had been passed by um, the Prince's father in order to stop his brothers and children marrying without his uh, without his consent. Um, so there's a series of prints about... Uh, uh, the Prince of Wales and Mrs. Fitzherbert, and then you go from Mrs. Fitzherbert to uh, uh, Lady Jersey as the next major uh, figure that the princes depicted with uh, earlier on. There was the Prince of Wales and Mrs. Robinson, the actress, Good Lord. Um, the Duke of 
Clarence was living with another actress, Dorothy Jordan, and that produces a whole series of prints. The Duke of York goes through Lady Tyrconnell and several other people. Uh, so the princes, uh, the various sons of George III, give Gilray loads and loads of scope. Um, oh, and what 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 happens with these prints? They just go into newspapers? Are they do people buy no, them and stick them on the walls? They're, they're separately published pieces of paper that um, cost um, around two and six generally, around two shillings and sixpence. They're about the same price as a night at the theatre, um, and you know it's that kind of that kind of level, uh, around the same prices as books. Um, and they tend to be collected by their victims. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Certainly the Prince of Wales had a huge collection. Charles James Fox, the opposition leader, very much taken the mickey out of by Gilray, uh, had a huge collection of Gilrays, which the family eventually, the Humphrey family Gilrays publishers eventually bought back. Um, so was he political at all? Did he take a side or did he just lampoon everybody? You said he worked for the government in the end. Um, I did. I mean, initially what tends to happen is that what, he's, he's working with and for publishers uh, and he may well be in the pub discussing with the publisher the latest idea that they might, they might put, go through with. Um, sometimes... Publishers are commissioned by, or artists are commissioned by individuals who want a particular design drawn or a particular idea turned into a caricature. So, you know, it's, it's quite likely he, he's working for somebody at that stage. Later on, especially with Hannah Humphrey, he has a greater degree of independence and you get something resembling a Gilray voice, which through the early 1790s is almost always, though not always, anti-Pitt, especially anti-Court. Um, and but, Pitt is the Conservative, making it very crude. Pitt is, Pitt is, well, yes, originally, he's a Whig, he's an independent Whig working with the city interest, but he becomes the king's man um, and and latterly is labelled a Tory, and uh, but it's certainly a royal government, which is essentially a Tory government. Um, and uh, George Canning, another future prime minister at that time, uh, working in the foreign office, um, uh, recruited Gilray, uh, for the government, essentially persuading him to take the Mickey out of the French and right. Put, put the, but but what's interesting is people are buying his prints who are being lampooned, so it doesn't suggest they're too upset by them. No, I mean I I, I think that I think I think if people had a fairly robust sense of humour, um, at least before the French Revolution. It tends to change a little after the French Revolution, but. Um, yeah, and does this sense of humor? The same thing happens today. Um, you know, politicians go and buy. They just they like to be in the news. They might, the the thing is, if you're not in the caricaturist shop, then uh, you know you're failing badly. It's much better to be there and be in the public eye. And interesting, they can take a joke. 
Um, and what's happened to these collections? Let's say of the royal family, or, or I mean, are they still at the you know in Windsor? I mean, are the Charles know. James Fox somewhere at the Carlton Club or something? Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, the Robert Peel's collection is in the Morgan in New York. Uh, the Prince of Wales's collection was broken up, um, and all his erotic prints were destroyed. Um, but, uh, most of that is in the Library of Congress now. Um, a royal collection is still at Windsor. Um, yeah, uh, um, what would you pay for a Gilroy, Gilroy now? Now? Yeah. Um, well, a very, very rare one. Uh, the unique erotic one costs the, un- the unique, um, one showing a, a soldier and what is probably a Dutch prostitute in, in action, which sold for 13,000. Um, you probably have to pay well over 10,000 for the plum pudding in danger, the one showing Pitt and Napoleon carving up the plum pudding that is the world. Um, yeah, uh, gen- what, generally about a thousand. Um, what's the size of the pictures? I mean, do, are they quite small? They're mostly 10 by 14 uh, inches. Uh, that's about 300 uh, millimetres by 240. And that's the standard size. Some of them are much bigger. Um, I don't know if I carry my computer over to my uh, wall. I can show you one or two. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> That, that is Gilray. Uh, can you see oh, him? Oh, I can see him. Right. Gosh, it's not the sort of image you normally expect. Uh, yes. Are, um, yeah. Gilray Prince. Slightly bigger than average. Uh, I'll come up to an average. I mean, he's quite varied in his style, isn't he? No, very varied, yeah. Sometimes very, very ambitious with these bigger ones. You know, Pitt uh, as Apollo with the opposition leaders as, as the evil things being driven away uh, in that one. Uh, I mean, one of the things we discussed before was Pitt on trial. Or, you know, this is a much more typical caricature. He introduces this wild facial exaggeration into his prince. So this is, this is the Prince of Wales and Charles James Fox gambling with the, some gambling women, Lady Archer. Was and, and who's been inspired by him? Did, did he have a sort of legacy of people who uh, sort of followed his techniques? Or his yeah, absolutely. The great Second World War um, caricaturist Lowe was, was regarded Gilray as the great. And you'll still, Steve Bell would say the same thing, or um, Martin Rosen, who writes about Gilray a lot. Today's caricaturists look up to him as the founding father and um, uh, of, of, of a tradition that continues. And they still use I mean, the plum pudding image of Pitt and Napoleon carving up the uh, the world is is reused again and again and again. It was on possibly the Spectator in January or December. Um, and um, uh, there's also fashionable contrasts which showed uh, the Duke of York's large legs uh, between, large feet between those of the uh, newly, the new Duchess of York um, was reused recently by Steve Bell, I think, to do Donald Trump and uh, Theresa May. Um, yeah. so, and 
Was there a sense for these caricatures that this is, in a sense, softening up people's attitudes towards the aristocracy, that the aristocracy were behaving badly, they were being lampooned, uh, and this led to, in a sense, a greater sort of feeling of democracy, not just the French Revolution, but, you know, leading on to the 1832 Reform Act, that the hereditary principle was under threat? Um, yes. Uh, I, I mean, especially in the 1780s, um, uh, monarchy and aristocracy are <laughs> being mocked and very much under attack from, from caricaturists. And with the French Revolution, there's huge pressure to suppress all that. Um, and effectively, you know, it was made illegal to caricature the king in 1795. Um, yeah, I should say, if anybody's interested, uh, Tim hasn't just written a great book on Gilray. Tim's written many great books. One of them I particularly like is a book about the Napoleonic War, uh, which very much takes the view, I think, if I can praise it, Tim, that it's possible Britain was on the wrong side. In that Britain stood for reaction and the past, and at least some of Napoleon was more about the future and democracy. I'm, I'm butchering your work. You regard the French Revolution as any sort of a good thing. I mean, Britain was, George III was determined to suppress the French Revolution in all its forms. It became slightly easier when you could depict Napoleon as a military dictator, which he very possibly was. Uh, and then it became a life and death struggle between England and France. But, you know, we were, were on the side of reaction, essentially. Well, I, I, and before I portray you as a raging lefty, which I know you're not, <laughs> I, I should point out that Andrew Roberts, who's one of the arch-Tory writers in Britain today, gave your book an amazing, really positive review in The, the Spectator, which is another Tory product, uh, publication. Oh, good luck to you for that. <laughs> yes. And what drew you to Gilray? What, what's the attraction? Um, I was... I just find I find him uh, a very very clever person. Um, I first worked on him uh, not long after I met uh, Phil in Cambridge. Um, I did a, an undergraduate dissertation on literary allusion in James Gilray's graphic satire because he he takes. He takes words from Shakespeare and puts them into the mouths of 18th century politicians, takes pictures by Reynolds and parodies them, pictures by Fuseli and parodies them. It's, a, it's an incredibly complicated pattern of irony and counter-irony. Often the same print will, will give you both, both views and, and it's, you know, Gilray is just a dry, sardonic, ironic, uh, eye on 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 the world around him and um and, and how can <laughs> how can historians learn from from let's say gilroy gilroy i mean when you were writing your history books did you apart from using him to illustrate i suppose popular attitudes or i mean are there other ways that one can use cartoonists like this or caricaturists well there's a uh, Studying caricature as uh, a mode of satire, um, as a way that uh, one, <laughs> what, <laughs> sorry, yeah, I'm not saying this very clearly. Um, satire is usually, it, it is easy to view it as the view of the people coming from below. Um, 
quite often it isn't. Quite often uh, satire is a, a caricature is much less innocent and is is being dictated by somebody working in the home office in order to pin, you know, somebody who, who is of the opposition or... Uh, um, so, I mean, it, it, you can study Gilray and caricature as a mechanism for public opinion, which is becoming very important at this date. Um, uh, I don't know. What else can I say? Well, I, I, uh, you've said good. a lot. Um, did, did, you think, did you think, um, you, would you have liked to meet him? Would you, I mean, do you like him? You know him better than pretty much anybody, I reckon, oh, alive today. Yes. If, I suspect a chippy, difficult uh, individual. He could. I, I wouldn't have minded having a drink with him in the pub, though. I mean, if you could have been on on the right side of him, uh, I should think it could have been quite amusing. Um, he was said to be. There's very. There, there are very few accounts of of Gilray, but um, or very few authentic accounts by by. By contemporaries, um, um, was he the dominant sort of caricaturist of the period, or are there others that were important that we've forgotten about? Well, there are several of his contemporaries that we haven't forgotten about. Thomas Rowlandson was was quite a close friend, and and this uh, equally good in a different way. Um, uh, and then uh, another contemporary is is Isaac Cruikshank father of the more famous George Cruikshank, who um, knew Gilray right at the end of his life and kind of continues the tradition directly, initially working for the same family, the Humphrey family. Um, yeah, then there are a lot of others uh, who we know. And how does Hogarth, for example, fit into all this? Well, Hogarth is a, is a, is a generation earlier, and in a, I mean... In one sense, he's the direct forebear of Gilray, and in another, he's doing a slightly different thing. Usually, Hogarth thought of himself as making modern moral comedy, whatever it is. Um, He's a kind of English comic art which, and his prints sold for rather more. Um, He doesn't tend to go in for the little political print, although he did uh, at one time. Uh, he, he, he worked on the government side against John Wilkes. Um, and, but, but in those days, the political print was a little sixpenny or one shilling thing. And Hogarth is producing larger, more ambitious prints that, that are, um, in a sense, intended to in a sense, a different genre, trying to be serious art. Gilray, in a way, is doing the same sort of thing because he starts, you know, he is working, he is he is doing political prints, but he tries to turn them into something altogether more ambitious and uh, mm-hmm. and and fanciful and and uh, wild. Um, well, you know, all- he belongs in the same category as William Blake and, and other odd people who are, who are doing rather wacky things. But the, the, the colour and the cruelty and the exaggeration and the, the kind of um, ballsiness, I guess you'd say, mm. of his work 
she feels to be perfect for the time in which he lived. Um, it's marvellous, yeah. I mean, I don't think he enjoyed the 1800s as much as he enjoyed the 1780s and 90s because you couldn't say too much in the 1800s. But um, mm. <laughs> Well, look, thank you so much. We're, we're, we're getting to the end of our slot and I think Zoom are going to kick us off the platform. But thank you so much for joining us on our little scandalous world. Um, well, it's a great pleasure to talk thank to you. you. And I hope, we, dr- we, I hope we drive some of our <laughs> dozens and dozens of viewers to, towards your wonderful books. And good luck with Gilroy. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Great. Well, now we can come on to the really good bit of the show. Uh, We're (laughs) talking Uh, about the scandal. brought down the Georgians. Uh, uh, Exactly. And I think the fascinating thing, which I was never taught at school, was the Great Reform Act, in some ways, was was driven by this distaste for the way the aristocrats were were operating. There have been a whole series of of famous court cases. Um, Give us the juicy highlights. Well, I mean, I'm going to start with with Lord Grosvenor, uh, who owned most of Mayfair. He was involved in a in, in a famous divorce. Uh, he was having relationships with with much younger girls, um, and a lot of this was covered by the the, the those new sheets of the time. There's something called New Town and Country, which ran for about twenty years, which was sort of early tabloid. But it went through. I mean, Grafton, who was the prime minister. Uh, his wife had an, uh, had a child uh, out of wedlock while he was prime minister. He had had a five-year affair with a woman called Nancy Parsons, who was a courtesan. He then moved on to someone else. She went to the Duke of Dorset. It was a musical chairs. <laughs> All went round. Um, and, you know, we, we, we know about the, you know, the fifth Duke of Marlborough was very, very keen to give up his inheritance, run off with his married lover, who was the wife of an MP, Marianne Sturt. Uh, the tabloids, uh, pilloried this with stories as love letters hidden in 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 cheeses, um, and then say, of course, I need to know more about this. Uh, I don't know how. You, well, I suppose you. I don't know how you 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 get your love letter into a cheese, or why that, that's an easy way to do it. But that's the story. They would and, smuggle letters in cheese to each other. Well, why not? That's, but I mean, the, the, you know, there was no respect in some ways they were showing. A lot of it was anonymous. There was a man called Junius who, who was particularly critical of, of Grafton. But, you know, the, there were these new sheets coming out. There weren't the laws of libel that we have now. People, a lot of it was an, anonymous. So I think that changed the views of, of the attitude towards the aristocracy. And, and who's uh, judging them? Is it the sort of the rising class of rather somber middle class virtuous people? I think I it's the middle about. class. I think the middle class will realize they have their chance here. There's, you know, there's, there's growing lack of, of respect for the aristocracy. There are all these, I hadn't realized there were a series of attempts to, to make adultery, um, um, illegal in the night in the 1790s. Look that. Exactly. <laughs> they haven't managed now. And that sort of leads right through, um, you know, right through to, to the Great Reform Act of 32. But you also have Wellington, Harriet Wilson, who's a courtesan, decides to sell, basically falls on hard times, decides to sell the story of her her, her conquest. Wellington exactly as like in Waterloo. In Waterloo, which, and she has dozens of, of lovers, uh, uh, Canning, the foreign secretary, <laughs> indeed even the king, the, the ambassador in Paris. And she, what she does very cleverly, she writes them and says, you know, if you don't appear in my book, you then pay me off, basically. Oh. You can, you can see a sort of Max Clifford operation here. Uh, and some do and some don't. And of course, Wellington makes this famous comment, scrolling across an envelope, you know, publishing be damned. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so they try and, you know, they try and deal with it that way. But I think, you know, th- that whole side of the, the, the Georgians is sort of forgotten about. And, 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 you know, these stories of, of, Basically shagging in, in, in high places. 
uh, and it being and reported. so part of the energy for the Great Reform Act then it wasn't just to spread the vote. It was to put a different kind of maybe more professional politician into power, yeah. rather than this sort of, you know, these dandified aristos. Exactly, and their, they'd and lost their all ways. Yeah, and 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 the, the whole hereditary principle was under under some sort of uh, at least criticism, if nothing else. That's so interesting. So, and it's not anything I was ever taught at school. Me neither. Uh, you know, in some ways, we could tell the story of 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 we should teach history through the prism of sex. I remember having a, a teacher at a university who decided that the empire was founded not in absence of fit of mind, but in a search for black flesh. Well, um, that's an interesting point. Uh, and in some ways, it's, it's the hidden element. There was a we brilliant TV series called Ruling Passions from about 20 years ago that was all about that. One of the driving forces was to the, the lure of the exotic. Right. And that you could go and you could find yourself, you know, um, so all these Georgians in effect, Asian woman. It, Right, so the, what you couldn't get in Georgian England, you had to go to Victoria and Africa for. Interesting. So well, it's, there you are. that's our next challenge. Maybe we're doing another podcast. How sex explains history. Yes, yes. Yes, if you want that, then <laughs> let, us know. Know, let us know. <laughs> well, I think we're done. Yeah. Are we done? I think we are. I think we are. Thanks for listening. And uh, I'm going to keep thinking more about sex and history. I'm looking forward to next week. We've got a very interesting uh, person coming to talk who is a mudlarker. And she goes down the Thames uh, at low tide and finds artifacts going right back to, I mean, I think right back to the Tudor period. Buried secrets of scandalous London hidden in the mud. And she's going to bring some of the artifacts in and talk around them because we we sort of think history is about documents, but it isn't. It's actually, you can learn so much from from artifacts. Okay. So she's a sort of archaeologist. Brilliant. I shall bring my rubber gloves. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.